seated. This morning, we are going to explore the question, how do you know that you are a Christian? How do you know that you are a Christian? Or another way to ask the question is that if you were to die right now, how do you know you would go to heaven instead of hell? Many ask this question in a casual way or in a hypothetical way, a curious way. People just want to know, like, how do I know if I'm a Christian? But others ask this question in a passionate way, while their soul is in despair, while their soul is in uncertainty. And if you've been around uh, Christianity for any period of time, you know that people wonder about these questions. And when we begin to explore the question, how do I know if I'm a Christian, you, you will find two very common responses. The first common response you will find is this answer. You can't be certain. This is what some people say. Uh, you, just, you just can't be certain that you are uh, a Christian. Now, one time I was talking with a Catholic priest, and he said that he regularly tells his church that they shouldn't try to be too certain of their salvation, because if they're certain of their salvation, then they're in danger of committing uh, the sin of presumption. They're walking in pride, and they're closer to going to purgatory or hell instead of heaven. And this response is built on the premise that God, our creator, our savior, doesn't actually want us to know. And if God doesn't want us to know whether or not we're Christians, then how in the world could we ever know if we are saved? But is that what the Bible teaches? Well, First John chapter 5, verse 13, this is what John says. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Uh, if you are a Christian, God wants you to know that you are a Christian. Another common response is that people will say something like this. I'm certain of my salvation, but I have bad sources for certainty. Bad sources of certainty. certainty. Now, people don't actually say I have bad sources of eternal certainty, uh, but they do. There are many bad sources for eternal security. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, this is what Jesus says. On that day, many will say to me, on, on what, which day? The final day. On the day when human beings stand in the presence of God, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? These are very religious people. People, they know the name of Jesus Christ. They call Jesus Lord, Lord. But look at verse 23. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. And so these are people with an expectation that when they die, that they're going to go to heaven instead of hell. But Jesus says, depart from me, you lawbreakers. Uh, this is likely because they had bad sources of certainty. They were confident in their salvation, but confident for the wrong reasons. And today there are many bad reasons for certainty of your salvation. One of them would be baptism. Some people say this, I know that I'm going to go to heaven when I die because I was baptized as a baby or I got baptized one time. Or some people say, I know I'm a, I'm a Christian, I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die because I take communion. You know, I take communion every week. Someone said, I take communion every week so that my sins from the previous week could, could get wiped away, wiped clean. Other people say, I know I'm a Christian because I'm a member of a gospel-preaching church, or I've been confirmed in a church, or I grew up in a Christian family. Or people probably won't say this, but they'll think this. They'll say to themselves, I know I'm a Christian because I'm better than most people. I'm just, I mean, just look at the world. The world is so messed up. I'm just better than most of the people in the world. But if your certainty rests on your good behavior, on your performance, what you do, you won't be certain for long. Uh, you will be all over the place because uh, even, even if we have good intentions, we don't even live up to our own standards. On December 26, 2023, uh, someone tweeted this and caught my attention. He said, it was my goal to lose 25 pounds in 2023, only 30 more to go. And 
I think all of us have had that experience where we get set on something, we're going to go do it. We're doing it, this, this is the time where the change is going to happen. And then you start, and then you end up further behind than when you started. Uh, we have this experience. So if your certainty of your salvation rests on your performance, your certainty will go like this. You'll be all over the place. And so the goal of Romans chapter 5 is that we would be justified before God, that we would possess salvation and be filled with the hope of glory. It doesn't do any, it's, it, it's actually cruel and evil and terrible if you're certain of your salvation if you're not saved. If you're not actually justified, if you're not a, a Christian, you should not have certainty that you are a Christian. But if you are a Christian, you have been justified before God. God wants us to be filled with the hope of eternal life. That we are to be people looking forward to the day when we see Christ. So how do we grow in our certainty of our salvation? Number one, embrace our peace with God. Embrace our peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word therefore marks a significant pivot in the book of Romans. Romans chapters 1 through 4, it's all about the doctrine of justification. It's about, it's about how God makes sinful people right with himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. But then in chapter 5, uh, the Apostle Paul, he's going to begin, really only in these verses, but he's going to begin to help us apply these truths to our lives and the way that we think and how we live. The word therefore, whenever you see the word therefore in the New Testament especially, uh, you should think of a bridge. Uh, you should think of a bridge. It's the therefore bridge. That the word therefore is going to connect truth to application, truth to how you think, truth to how you live. And chapters like Romans chapter 5 demonstrate the value of biblical doctrine, biblical teaching. Uh, here's a picture of a, of a river pretty high up uh, in the mountains. Uh, this is ice cold water, clean water, refreshing water, life-giving water. But where does this river come from? You have to go higher up into the mountains, and it flows from these glaciers. And these glaciers melt, and then they form a river, and it flows downstream, this clear, ice-cold, life-giving river. And the way I think about biblical doctrine, it's like the glacier. It's like a glacier high up in the mountains. And what we're doing week over week as we study the Bible ourselves, as we go to community group Bible studies, when we come to church, we are storing up these glaciers in our soul. And then what flows from it is a river. It's the river, a life-giving river of application. And sometimes we can poo-poo doctrine. We can poo-poo uh, things that we don't understand. We, we, we can read things in the Bible and we say, that's kind of cool, but I have no idea what to do with it. So we dismiss it. We say, it's not that important that we understand these things because I don't know what to do with it right now. But the way we should think about it is that week over week, we're storing up high in our hearts these glaciers. And over the course of time, those glaciers melt. They melt. Uh, you're going to run into difficulty. You're going to run into challenges. Your life is going to change. You're going to suffer. You're going to have opportunities to make some big decisions. And when you have those glaciers stored up in your heart and they begin to melt, what will flow from deep within you, it is a river of application. Uh, by the grace of God, I'm not saying you have every problem solved, but you will know you'll have principles about how to live and how to navigate life in a life-giving way. And so we need to value these truths. He says, look what he says. Think about what he's saying. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. War is the opposite of peace. And if you are not justified by faith, 
then you are not at peace with God. You are at war with God. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, if you're not justified by faith, you're an enemy of God. The default setting on the human soul is not child of God, it's enemy of God. It's not under grace, it's under wrath. It's not on your way to heaven, it's on your way to hell. Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated. If you haven't been justified by faith in Christ alone, you're, you are alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. How do you know that you're at war with God? Well, it's because you live in sin. You don't live in righteousness, you live in sin. You march to your own beat. And what the scriptures teach is that there's nothing that we could do as human beings to, to make ourselves right with God. We couldn't do, there's nothing we could do. There's no amount of going to church that could ever make us right with God. There's no amount of giving our money away. Or there's no amount of money we could give away. There's no amount of serving the poor. There's no amount of reading or praying or doing good deeds or keeping the law that could ever make us be at peace with God. But the good news is that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. And he came into the world to establish peace between God and man, to reconcile the world to himself through his blood. When we think about peace with God, uh, the place our mind must go is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is where our peace was established. Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So when you think about Jesus up on the cross and you see him bleeding in your mind's eye, you see Christ, the crown of thorns on his head, being whipped and bruised and beaten and blood is running down his body, hitting the ground. You should think that is the price of our peace with God. He bled and died that we might be at peace with God. He carried the weight of our sin, the guilt, the shame, the punishment, the record of our sin that demands your death was laid on Christ that we might be at peace with God. And so brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, if you have been justified by faith, you are, right now, you are at peace with God. Now this is where we need to understand a biblical contrast. Uh, there, there are these two different categories when we talk about peace, and many Christians have one category. It's an overlapping ca category. It's one category in our mind, but really biblically it's two. And when it's, when it's one category, it leads to much confusion about our standing with God. And so the, here are the two categories. First is peace with God. See, our peace with God is objective and unchanging. It does not fluctuate with your behavior. Peace with God, the war being ended, was accomplished at the cross. It is objective. If you've been justified by faith, you are at peace with God. But then there's another biblical category. It is the peace of God. The peace of God. Paul writes about this all over the place. One of those places being Philippians chapter 4. And see, peace of God, the peace of God is subjective. It is subjective and it can change. It's how you experience these great biblical realities. And many people have one category and so this is what people can tend to think. If I don't feel the peace of God, therefore I am not at peace with God. If I don't feel the peace of God, I'm not at peace with God. We can feel, even as Christians, that God might be at war with us because we've sinned or we've, do, we've done something bad. We don't act, we, we're not experiencing the joy of our salvation. But then we say, well, okay, okay, okay. I know God loves me and Jesus died for me, so maybe, maybe, okay, maybe God's not at war with us anymore, but maybe it's just a ceasefire. It's a ceasefire. The cross is a ceasefire. A ceasefire is the agreement not to shoot each other for a period of time. 
And so we walk around in our minds anticipating that if we sin, if we do something bad, that God will pick up his guns and start shooting at us. But see, that's only a ceasefire. If that were, were true, it's only a ceasefire. There is no peace with God through the blood of Christ. So how are we to think about this? Well, let's do a thought experiment. Let's say that last night you sinned badly. You sinned badly. You're, you're actually a Christian. You have been justified by faith in Christ alone. Your, your sins have been removed from you. You are a child of God, adopted into the family of God. You're actually a Christian, and last night you sinned badly. Or let's say today you're going to sin badly by rooting for the Lions instead of Brock Purdy and the 49ers, which would be a huge mistake. You might lose your salvation, I'm just saying, if you do, end up doing that. So don't do that. But no, seriously, okay, so let's say you do something really bad, okay? So let's say you're, you are justified by faith. God has given you a spirit. Your sins are removed from you. You're at peace with God, and you commit adultery. Okay, so you commit adultery tomorrow. Are you at peace with God? What's the answer? Yes. You're at peace with God. You are at peace with God. There is no more wrath aimed at you. There is no more punishment and judgment for our sins because all of the wrath of God was extinguished at the cross. If you're justified by faith, you are at peace with God. And if sin could violate the peace of God, if, if our sin put us back at war with God, then we would be at war with God all the time. If our sin... If, if our peace with God was contingent upon your performance, you would go from being at war to peace, to war to peace, war, peace, up and down. And there would be no certainty. But see, peace with God is an objective reality. To be a Christian is to stand at peace with God apart from what you do. Now, what about the peace of God? How do you experience your salvation while you commit adultery? You'll be miserable. It'll ruin your life. You'll feel far from God. If you treasure sin, you will come under the judgment or under the discipline of God, but not as a judge, but as a father. You will experience much pain. You will ruin your own life. You will unleash hell in your own life, no doubt about it. So I'm not saying that somehow God is pleased with our adultery. I'm not saying that God is okay with it. That's not what I'm saying at all. All I'm saying is that we stand secure by the blood of Christ, not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. So embrace your peace with God. Embrace it. Praise God for it. It's a gift. It, it is one of the great blessings of our justification that we stand at peace with God. Number two, stand in the grace of God. Stand in the grace of God. Romans 5.2. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. This is another statement about what is true of you as a Christian apart from how you feel that we stand in the grace of God. Now, what does it mean to stand in the grace of God? It's a little bit of an abstract concept. So what, what does that mean to stand in the grace of God? Where, where should we see ourselves as Christians? Well, to help us think through this, there are two words that describe what it means to stand in the grace of God. The first word is the word access. Access. Romans 5.2. We've also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we Stand. The Apostle Paul loves the word access. Access. Ephesians chapter 13, we see what he means. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far 
away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Sin, our sin, my sin, was the barrier between God and me. Your sin is the barrier between God and you. And through the blood of Christ, that barrier of sin has been removed so that you who were once far away can be brought near. You're brought near to God. Verse 18, he expands on this thought. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near. Oh, that's verse 13. Verse 18 says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access to the Father. So where is that standing of grace? It is in the presence of God. It is in the presence of the glory of God. We have access to the glory of God because of our peace with God, and we stand in grace. We have access to God the Father. We have access to his glory. In the Old Testament scriptures, what you see, you see this in the New Testament, but you see it clearly in the Old Testament, that sin equals no access to God. Sin equals no access to God, and no access to God equals death. So why, do, why are the wages of sin death? Well, because sin separates us from God. And to be separated from God is to die. There is no life apart from him. We see this in the Garden of Eden, that after Adam and Eve sinned, God judges their sin, and he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. And he puts two angels, two cherubim, in front of the entrance to the Garden of Eden with flaming swords of fire. And what those, what those flaming swords of fire's fire say to people to adam and eve is you may not come you may not come in here you're out separated or you think about the temple you think about the temple for a moment that the temple was divided into different sections so there's the part of the temple that was called the 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 courtyard of the gentiles and then there was the courtyard of the women and then there was the courtyard for the priests where they could make sacrifices but then there was the holy of holies the place the epicenter of god's presence on earth. And outside of the Holy of Holies was a giant veil, a giant curtain. And that curtain said to humanity, access denied. You may not come in. You can't come. But when Jesus came into the world, he came to remove that barrier, that, that, that picture of the veil. He came to remove the veil that people might enter into the presence of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. And so what's happening is that when Jesus is up on the cross and his, his body is being broken, he's bleeding and dying, what happens when Jesus dies is that the curtain of the temple, the separation between God, or God and man, the curtain tore in two, down the middle. God tore that. Why did he tear that? Because Jesus' body was torn. The curtain was torn. And so when you think about Jesus up on the cross dying, what is he saying to you? He's saying a million things, but he's saying his, his death, his body being broken is saying to you, you may come in. You may come in. You may come. Now, how can you come? Well, because if you're in Christ, you have your sins removed from you. He goes on to say in verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. He's saying you have been washed clean by the blood of Christ so we can go boldly into the presence of God. We have access to the presence of God because of what Christ has done for us. And so he says in verse 22, let us then draw near, draw near. To stand in a position of grace 
is to draw near to God. It is in the presence of God. We have access to him. And to have access to God is to have life. To have access to God is to have life. So what does it mean to stand in the grace of God? It means we have access to the presence of God. Number two, we boast. We boast. Not only do we have access to God, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Verse two, we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in so many things as human beings. We boast in our wealth. We boast in our sicknesses. Sometimes we take pride in the things that have gone wrong in our lives. We boast in our physical strength. We boast in so many different things. I mean, the, it is almost, the list is almost endless as far as what we will find ourselves boasting in. But as Christians, Paul tells us to boast in the hope of the glory of God. What do we boast in? We boast in the hope of the glory of God, which means we are able to look forward to the reality of heaven because we're at peace with God. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We have access to God. We stand in the grace of God. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I love this description of heaven. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says, He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, what, what will heaven be like? Well, one aspect of this is that in heaven, when the Lord returns, we will see the glory of God. With your eyes, you will see the glory of God and you will share in the glory of God. First John chapter three, John talks about how we will see him as he is. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. That is our hope, that we will be changed. When we see his glory, we will share in his glory. And how glorious is Jesus? He's infinitely glorious. That is our future. That is our future. And so do you look forward to heaven? just a good thing to think about. Do you look forward to heaven? Is that something that excites you? As, as Christians, we are to look forward to, to heaven, but sometimes we say, oh, but my heart is so fickle. I go back and forth, so how do I know that I'm really a Christian? How do I know that that is a, that is a certainty for me, heaven, that heaven is real? It, I'm really gonna get there. Number three, trust the process. You need to trust the process. There's a process laid out in Romans chapter five. He says in verse 3, and not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. So it makes sense to boast uh, in the hope of the glory of God. That makes sense to look forward to heaven. But he says, we don't only boast in that, we boast in our afflictions. This is one of the most counterintuitive things human beings can do. Uh, we do not naturally boast in our afflictions. We don't boast in our sufferings. We don't boast when things go badly for us. We complain. That is our natural state. The natural state of our heart is to complain when life isn't going the way we want it to go. Now, to help us think through what Paul's saying, we need to consider three sources of afflictions in the world. There are at least three. There are probably more. But one of them is choices. Uh, why do we suffer? Uh, the, the word affliction means, it comes from the Greek word thalipsis. It means pressure, pain, pain. We're supposed to re rejoice in that. So why, why do we suffer? Why do we experience these pressures in life. Well, one of the reasons, one of the most common reasons is our choices. God has, he has ordered the world in such a way that you reap what you sow. And the overwhelming majority of the suffering we will experience is due to our own bad choices. 
and the bad choices of other people. The overwhelming majority of, of the pain we experience, it comes because we're not honoring God. And so this type of affliction, the Bible would say, avoid this type of affliction. Don't, don't sin and harm yourself. Don't commit adultery. Don't lust. Don't hate. Don't kill. Don't be greedy. All of these things will reap nasty consequences in your life. Another source of affliction is trials. It is trials. It's difficulties. See, we live in a fallen world, and the world is not the way it ought to be. It's not the way we wish it would be. And so this means we are constantly bumping into difficulties that are just part of life. The, 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 the life doesn't go the way that we always plan. I was at a uh, fifth grade boys basketball game yesterday, and it was a very competitive game. Uh, my son, Jet, was playing, and they were ahead with like maybe a minute to go. They were up by two points, I think. About a minute to go, and uh, they had the ball. They're dribbling up the court, and this kid on the other team, good player, he had really, really long hair and kind of a small head, and he had a headband on. So he has his headband to keep his hair out of, out of his eyes. And this little boy, fifth grader, he makes a great play. He steals a pass. So he's running, jumps, tips the ball, gets the ball, and now he has a free layup. The problem is that when he landed, I watched this happen, it was awesome. When he landed, his headband came over his eyes. So he has his, he has his hair, and then his headband goes over his eyes. And I'm like, what is he going to do? Like, what's, what's going to happen here? And he wasn't that far from the hoop. But I thought he was going to, like, pull it up or do something. But he said, no, I'm going I'm to go for it, just from memory. I'm going to do this by memory. And so he goes towards the hoop. And he misses the backboard. He doesn't even hit the backboard. He throws the ball out of, out of bounds. And I said, cut your hair, kid. I didn't say, I didn't say that, but that's what I thought. And, um, and I thought, you know what? Sometimes that happens. Did he do anything wrong? He didn't do anything wrong. Made a great play. But the headband comes over his eyes, blinds him as he's going to shoot the ball. And sometimes what will happen is that you'll have trees in your yard. And a tree will fall one way and miss your house. And then other trees will fall a different way and hit your house. Is that your fault? Could be, but probably not. Or sometimes you're driving and you slip on the ice and you get into a car accident. Or sometimes you get a disease. And sometimes you get cancer. And sometimes your kids get cancer. And sometimes heart attacks happen. And it's not anyone's fault. It's just part of living in a fallen world. And it's inevitable. Things happen in a fallen world, and they can produce so much pain. For that little fifth grade boy, it was probably just a little bit of embarrassment, and then you just kind of go on. But for other people, there's a lot of pressure that comes because we live in a fallen world. And number three, the third source, is persecution. It's persecution. There is a unique suffering that can come into the world because of the word of God. Uh, it really is, its source really is demonic. Uh, when Christians are persecuted, it is, it's not from God. It's from the flesh and it's from the devil. I was reading uh, about Thomas Cranmer in the 16th century. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Interesting man, godly man. He's best known for writing the, the Anglican Common Book of Prayer. It was published in 1549. It's still read all the time today. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible book. I mean, for hundreds of years, people have read it and been instructed and encouraged and blessed. So he wrote that in 1549. And then he wrote the 42 articles explaining what the English church is and how God was using the church. I mean, it's an incredible movement if you study the history. So he's a godly man, very influential man. But in 1553, Queen Mary I 
wanted to bring Roman Catholicism to England. And Cramner, because of his position as the Archbishop of Canterbury, faced much persecution, much pressure. And day after day, the pressure was rising to the point where he was threatened with his life, that he was going to be burned at the stake. And so he was sitting in prison. I mean, could you imagine this? You give your whole life to loving Christ, serving him. And then you get arrested by this wicked woman, the Queen of England, put into prison, and you're handed a statement where you are renouncing your faith in Christ. And if you sign the paper, you go free. And if you don't, you die. So here's Thomas Cramner, strong man of God. He signs the paper, denounces his faith in Christ, and walks away. Shortly after that, he said, what did I do? <laughs> what did I do? Why in the world did I do that? I made the wrong decision. And so he signed another piece of paper, confessing his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, I'm recanting uh, that I just recanted my faith in Christ. He's going back. He's like, no, no, this is what I believe. And he doubles down. And so they came after him. And they wanted to make an example of him. So they gathered the city. They lit the fire. And before he goes in, he says, the hand that dishonored God and signed that paper will burn first. And he puts his hand in. And then he's burned alive and dies. And I was reading that story and I was just thinking about how pressure does something to the soul. It does something to you. The word thalipsis is a word that means to crush. You crush grapes to make wine. You crush olives to make olive oil. This is the word. And there is crush, crushing persecution crushing trials. Uh, there's so much pain that we can experience in our lives. And if you live long enough, you will experience affliction. And as Christians, I think a significant mistake we have made as Christians is that we have prioritized comfort and convenience way too much. We love comfort too much. We love ease too much. And when life doesn't go our way, it is so easy to complain about it. It is so easy to just get so upset about it. You know, for the last couple of weeks, my garage door, because of the cold weather, it hasn't been working properly. So I hit the button, and it goes up a foot, and then it goes down, and then it goes up, and then it goes down, and then it goes up, and it goes back and forth. And as this has been happening the last couple of weeks, my soul is complaining. It's crying out, you know, Lord, what manner of affliction is this? I mean, why are you doing this to me? Don't you know I have places to be? I don't want to wait 15 extra seconds. And see, when, when... When we experience inconvenience, when we experience pain, that is where your faith in Christ is tested. How you handle affliction is where your faith is being tested. And so Paul says this, and not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. We don't boast that we are suffering you know, we don't say, oh, I broke my right leg. I wish I would have broke my left leg too. You know, more suffering, more fun. You know, that's not what he's saying. We boast in it. While we walk through it, we boast in our afflictions. Now, why would you ever boast in affliction? Verse 3. And not only that, but we boast in our afflictions because we know. We know that affliction produces endurance. See, Paul had this theology, these doctrines high up in his heart like a giant glacier. And as affliction came, those glaciers melted and formed this river. 
And he says, what flows from these truths is that in our affliction, we rejoice. We boast. We boast in our afflictions. Why? Because we know God is doing something in our affliction that he could do no other way. He could do no other way. And so in, there, it's not meaningless. It's not empty that God is doing something in our affliction. So we boast. We glory in it. We don't avoid it. Now, obviously, don't hit yourself with a hammer. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying but as we encounter trials, especially for the name of Christ, we boast. What does affliction produce? Endurance. Now, endurance is the Greek word hupomone. Hupomone. So this is the way it works. Thalipsis, pressure. Hupomone, under the pressure. It means to remain under the pressure. So the pressure is teaching you to remain under the pressure. The pressure is teaching you to remain under the pressure. The pressure is teaching you endurance. And this makes perfect sense. This is how everything in life works. That if you want to get better at running, develop endurance in running, you run. You want to develop endurance in lifting weights? You lift weights. Six months ago, I got really excited about lifting weights. Like really excited. And so I joined Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone in our city. And day one came. Like day one came. And I was like, packed my bag, doing it. I'm going for it. So I got in the weight room, and I hit it, I hit it so hard for eight minutes. And then I was, I was done. Like I couldn't, I did like six exercises, and I can't move. I'm, I'm just spent. I have no endurance. Now, I've been lifting for about six uh, months, as you, you can tell, and um, <laughs> just joking, but I've been li- lifting weights for six months, and I'm not strong, but I'm stronger. I have better endurance because I've been lifting weights, and over the years, I have been so surprised, so surprised by how many people quit. They give up. They keep going to church. They keep saying they're Christians. But as the Christian life gets more complex and inconvenient, as life gets busier, we just say, what goes? I'm not going to spend time with the Lord anymore. Why would I do that? I'm busy. Church is inconvenient. I'm not going to go. Money, I have more money challenges in life, so I'm not going to trust God with my money. Raising our kids is difficult, and we can't really raise our kids the way God's asking us to because it's just uncomfortable. It requires too much, so I'm not going to do that. Sharing the gospel I'm not going to share the gospel with anyone because that's uncomfortable, might make me feel uncomfortable. And there are many examples of this. And so what we do is we try to navigate life, avoiding all the difficulties of the Christian life. But dear brothers and sisters, if you skip the hard parts of Christianity, you skip the benefits as well. You skip the hard parts, you skip the benefits. So Paul says, we don't skip the hard parts. We don't skip the heart. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because God is developing endurance in us. And then endurance produces proven character. Endurance produces proven character and proven character hope. I love the phrase proven character. It's one word in the Greek, proof. That's what it means. Endurance produces proof. Proof of what? The genuineness of your faith. And the genuineness of your faith produces hope. Hope. This idea of proven character is the same idea as John 15, 8. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit. See, proven character is the fruit of the gospel, the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of a transformed life. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove, not earn, you prove to be my disciples. 
You prove by endurance. There's much here to be said. But just to summarize, I'm going to give you three sentences that I think captures what we're, what we're getting at here. So how do we know? How do we know we're, we're Christians? Well, there's not a button you're going to push. Like, just hit the button, and then you know. Here are three sentences that capture what Paul is teaching here. First, a justifying faith is not a perfect faith, but an enduring faith. How do you know you have real justifying, saving faith? You endure. You keep going. You're not perfect. You keep going. An enduring faith is a fruitful faith. An enduring faith is a fruitful faith. It produces proven character, a transformed life. And I'm telling you, one of the, the highest joys of my whole life over the years of being a pastor here is just watching the transformed lives of so many of you. I mean, that's like the highest joy that I have. It's just seeing people, by the grace of God, endure and bear fruit. And it's glorious. It's beautiful to me. Uh, a justifying faith is, a perfect, is not a perfect faith, but an enduring faith. An enduring faith is a fruitful faith. And a fruitful faith is filled with hope. It is filled with hope. Hope of the glory of God. Romans 5.5, 5, this hope will not disappoint us. Almost everything in life disappoints. <laughs> Almost everything. You look forward to it, it disappoints. Nearly everything will end up disappointing you. Don't say that to your spouse and your kids, obviously, but almost everything. This is a hope that will deliver. Be why? Because God has poured out. God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so this is the place I think we want to get, this, the condition of our soul. Here it is. This is a John Newton quote. This is what he says. I hope, you're, I hope and pray your soul can say this. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm, I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I used to be. This is a heart that knows the grace of God. This is a heart that has suffered and endured by his grace and has proven character. So brothers and sisters, don't waste your pain. Don't waste your pain. Don't, don't, don't live life just avoiding all the difficulties. Don't do that. You will regret it. Trust God. Walk through it. Obey him for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is true.